Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee, by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. What makes a perfect man break and do something heinous? On February 17, 1970, the perfect husband and father called police to report that a horrible crime had taken place in his home. A crime which, to this day, no one knows the true motive. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Jeffrey McDonald was almost always a well-liked man. He was voted most popular and most likely to succeed when he was in high school, was captain of the football team, and earned himself a scholarship to Princeton University, all while maintaining a relationship and later marrying his high school sweetheart, Colette Catherine Stevenson. They had a daughter together named Kimberly in 1964 and would later welcome a second child named Kristen in 1967. After three years at Princeton, Jeffrey and Colette moved to Chicago, where he had been accepted into a medical school. 
He graduated in 1968, completed an internship in New York, and in July of 1969, joined the U.S. Army, earned the rank of captain, and moved the family once again to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where he excelled, and soon, Colette was pregnant with their third child. Things on the surface couldn't have been going better for the McDonald's. They truly had it all. Which is what makes the events of February 17, 1970, all that much more shocking. At approximately 3.42 a.m. on February 17, 1970, dispatchers in Fort Bragg received a distressing call from Jeffrey McDonald, claiming that there had been a stabbing at his residence. Military police arrived, assuming it was a domestic dispute, but found that the front door was closed, locked, and the lights were out as if no one was home. The back door, however, was wide open. When no one responded to their calls, they entered the home and, in each of their rooms, were the bodies of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen. Five-year-old Kimberly had been hit on the head with a blunt object and then stabbed in the neck eight to ten times while two-year-old Kristen had been stabbed with both a kitchen knife and an ice pick almost 50 times. Colette, who was pregnant with the couple's first son, was lying on the floor of her bedroom having been beaten, both arms broken, stabbed 21 times with an ice pick and 16 times with a knife. Her torn pajama top was draped across her chest and on the headboard of her bed was the word pig written in blood. Next to his wife's body was Jeffrey McDonald, who was wounded but still alive. His wounds were nowhere near as severe and savage as the ones given to his family and included a clean, small, sharp incision that was caused his left lung to partially collapse. According to Jeffrey, who was released from the hospital just a week after the attack, he had fallen asleep on the couch on the evening of February 16th because Kristen, who had been in the bed with Colette, had wet his side of the bed. He said that in the middle of the night, he was awoken by the sounds of Colette and Kimberly screaming and jumped from the couch to get them when he was attacked by three male intruders, while a woman with long blonde hair wearing high-heeled boots and a floppy hat that covered her face stood nearby with a candle chanting, Acid is groovy, kill the pigs that he was attacked by the men with a club and an ice pick and was eventually overcome and knocked unconscious. When he awoke, his entire family had been murdered. Pretty quickly, the Army's Criminal Investigation Division decided that Jeffrey's version of the story seemed unlikely when the physical evidence didn't match up properly with his chain of events. For instance, he claimed there was a serious struggle between him and the three men who were in his house. But apart from an overturned coffee table and a knocked over plant, there was very little evidence that a fight took place. There was also the matter of his torn pajama top. Fibers from his shirt were not found in the living room, which is where he said it was ripped. They were instead found under Kristen's fingernails and had Kimberly's blood on them, even though he said it was off by the time he entered her room. The murder weapons, which all came from the McDonald's house, were found outside the back door, and upon further investigation, they were able to determine that, under the blood-soaked word pig, were the tips of a surgical glove identical to the supply that the doctor kept in the kitchen. But probably the most damning piece of evidence came from an anomaly in the McDonald's girls' blood. All three girls and Jeffrey had different blood types. Because of this, they were able to give a highly detailed step-by-step -step reconstruction of where the fight began and how each member lost their lives. The theory went as follows. 
that the fight began in the master bedroom between Jeffrey and his wife, who likely argued over Kristen wetting his side of the bed, that she hit him with a hairbrush, resulting in his concussion. When he awoke, he began beating her with his fist before moving on to a piece of lumber. Most likely awoken by her mother's screams, Kristen came into the bedroom where she was hit over the head, her blood and brain serum found on the doorway of the master bedroom. Believing Colette was dead and Kimberly was close to it, he carried the young girl back to her bed where he stabbed her to death, before moving on to Kristen. But before he could enter her room, Colette stumbled into Kristen's room, resulting in her blood being present on the bed and walls, and threw herself over her last remaining daughter. He then killed them both, wrapped up Colette's body, and moved it into their bed. That the story of the hippie intruders and the addition of the Manson-like writing may have come from an issue of Esquire that the McDonald's had sitting in their living room that contained an article about the Manson cult killings and that the sole injury he sustained came from his own hand after the fact. With all of this information, the Army formally charged Jeffrey McDonald on May 1st, 1970. Now, all of this seemed pretty open and shut until a woman named Helena Stokely came forward. Just 17 when the McDonald's were killed, she came forward bearing a striking resemblance to the woman Jeffrey claimed was with the male intruders in his home that night and was a known drug user. She admitted to the crimes and even implicated her own boyfriend. But as years passed, her stories changed drastically before finally admitting that she had never been to the McDonald's home, let alone committed the murder. While his lawyers fought to use Helena to get his charges dropped, Jeffrey was honorably discharged from the army and returned to New York City, where he began making a series of strange television appearances, making jokes about being the prime suspect, even briefly returning to his job as a doctor. Colette's stepfather, who was initially on his son-in-law's side, worked diligently to try to find the man who killed his stepdaughter and granddaughters, resulting in Jeffrey telling an outlandish story that he and some of his army friends had tracked down, tortured, and murdered one of the men responsible. But once her family saw the transcript of the CID's hearing, they noticed the numerous inconsistencies in his stories and were no longer on Jeffrey's side. On April 30th, 1974, her parents, with the persistence and help of the prosecution, filed a citizen's complaint against their son-in-law with the chief district court judge requesting a grand jury to indict him for the murders. He was indicted on January 24, 1975, and within the hour was arrested in California, but freed on a $100,000 bail. He, of course, pleaded not guilty, and after a series of appeals and stays, the trial began on July 16, 1979, over nine years after Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen were killed. Unfortunately, the trial wasn't going to be easy. While they had ample evidence against the doctor, what the prosecution lacked was a motive. There was no history of violence, no financial gain, and no signs that the marriage was in any real trouble. And unfortunately, the judge for this particular trial ruled that the information gained during his initial hearing with the military and the reports done by their investigators were not admissible because this was a civil trial, claiming that they were biased. Despite this, on August 29, 1979, Jeffrey McDonald was convicted of one count of first-degree murder in the death of Kristen and two counts of second-degree murder in the deaths of Colette and Kimberly. 
He was immediately given a life sentence for each murder and has been in prison ever since, fighting for his freedom. Dr. Jeffrey McDonald to this day maintains his innocence. In fact, when eligible for parole in 1991, he refused to apply, stating that by applying, it would mean he was admitting his guilt in their murder. The legal battle has continued for years, with lawyers filing a number of appeals, throwing allegations around, claims of new DNA evidence, and having the investigation looked over time and time again. There were allegations that Stokely's own mother said the girl confessed to her before her death, that evidence had been suppressed, and fights that he didn't receive a fair trial. And now that Greg Mitchell, who Helena accused of murdering Colette, and Helena Stokely herself are both dead, it is unlikely that we will gain any more information on the case. Jeffrey McDonald continues to fight for his new trial to this day. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on February 18th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.